This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. By the book on BFM 89.9. Hello, you're listening to By the Book with Sharmila Ganesan. And as always, uh, joining me is my fellow lover of Malaysian stories, Lee Chui Lin. Hello. So today we're both quite excited because we have with us Preeta Samarasan, who is the author of Evening is the Whole Day, which was a finalist for the Commonwealth Writers' Prize uh, in 2009. It was also on the long list for the Orange Prize for Fiction. And we're having her on because she's just had a new novel out. It's called Tale of the Dreamer's Son. Preeta, great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Shamila Andin. I'm not going to give away too much about what the story is, um, because I think a lot of the pleasure is in reading the book. Um, But just to say, the story picks up from May 13th um, and sort of imagines a group of people who decide to start a a centre, as it were, uh, uh, to sort of live apart from Malaysian society um, in a commune of sorts that is free of race, that is free of religion. Um, And that's what the starting point for the story is. Where did the inspiration for this novel begin and where did it come from? I think to begin with, I was quite interested in the state of being a child who is pulled into their parents' religious uh, quests or spiritual quests. So it came from that a little bit. uh, um, But I also was quite interested in um, the idea of a figure, some kind of leader figure who would respond in that way to the crisis of May 13th. You know, what if there had been someone who had that idea as flawed as it is and as difficult as it would have been to execute yeah, it was just a kind of what if game, actually. And then, you know, I let the characters grow out of that thought experiment. So I realized that this is um, both on, on in one sense, a very simple question. In another sense, it's a complicated one. But if someone who hasn't read the book asks you, mm-hmm. hey, so you wrote a book, what is it about? Um, what would your answer be? I think I usually say it's about a man. He's telling the story of his life. He's uh, telling you his whole life story. Um, and he grew up in a utopian pan-religious movement founded by his father. And he's trying to make sense of that past and reconcile it with his present life in modern-day Malaysia. So we've referenced May 13th, of course, and Tale of the Dreamer's Son sort of begins in 1969, but it does shuttle back and forth between the late 1980s, present day, uh, the near future also. Um, What did these timelines allow you to explore about how Malaysia has changed or hasn't changed in some cases? Um, Yeah, I I guess, you know, um, what they really allowed me to explore, I mean, I was actually thinking about it uh, while writing the novel much more in the context of what would have changed and not changed for these characters more than, you know, for Malaysia as a, even, of course, of of course, Malaysia is the background and it does because people live in the context of a country. So I had to, uh, but, you know, deal with that as well. But I think when you're telling a story, it's very much about the people in the story. And so it's about, it's really about the, the grand hope, and and the disappointment or the disillusionment and and where you go from that what do you do with that kind of disappointment and disillusionment and how do you make you know um, a present life with it so i think uh for that character for the narrator of the of the novel you know he um he lives in this kind of detached state which we see at the beginning he he doesn't he's someone who has trouble 
making connections, making meaningful connections with other people. And so, you know, make of that what you will. Whether When I was writing the novel, I did not think about this as a metaphor for Malaysia as a whole, as, um, you know, an allegory for Malaysian society. But I do think that, you know, be, because... The nature of this particular novel, I think, also makes it makes it that way. Like whatever he's going through is in microcosm, um, kind of what the country had to do as well in those in those forty or so intervening years. You know, where do you go from there? What do you, what meaning can you make out of disappointment? I feel like the way we're talking about the book, um, you know, referencing disillusionment, talking about these things, um, even saying present day Malaysia, all, all of it makes it sound uh, very serious. And the book is about serious things, but it's also very funny. There's a lightness of touch to it um, that I found interesting. I, I Even when talking about um, the deepest failures in some ways of people's life work, which uh, if we talk about the narrator's father, for instance, is very much a thing. Um, it is a funny book. And I was hoping you could talk to us about that, because I'm not sure people would expect that even hearing how we're talking about the book right now. Yeah, it is a funny book. I put a lot of effort into trying to write a funny book, actually. One reason is because I thought, you know, most of the authors who write about serious things using humor are men. Um, it's I, I, male authors are given a kind of permission to be this particular kind of funny, and maybe that's one of the reasons in the end that that I have this male narrator, uh, which I don't know if that's a cop out or not. Maybe it should have been a woman to to make you know to make that point even more strongly that women can do this funny slash serious thing. But it seemed I don't know the 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 book seemed to call. I wanted to write about a father son relationship, so that's one of the reasons. But um, yeah, to use humor. I mean, I think humor is an interesting force for for political commentary for satire but not just satire i think um humor is many things it's also a high level defense which this character is using to kind of build an emotional wall to protect himself he uses humor which you know real people do people do that in real life um and uh yeah i mean i also the the humor came out of trying trying to create this very Malaysian voice. I think Malaysians are very funny people. I think we use humor as a, as not just as a defense, but as a, uh, as comfort, you know, we, we often when things are going really poorly, that's when people are, they are funniest. And I think Malaysians are among the funniest people I know as a society. So I really wanted to reflect that in the novel. So we've referenced him so much that I think it's only fair that we name him. Uh, much of the novel is seen through the eyes of one Clarence Kanan Chengho Muhammad Yusuf Dragon. Um, and he's a fascinating character. He's unreliable. He's not always very likable. Um, and as he tells us about himself, he's also a pretty passive character. What was that yeah. like to write? It was very tricky. I had a lot of trouble getting um, a handle on him. Um, it's very difficult to write a passive and unlikable character. I mean, frankly, I don't like him for much of the novel either. He has his, you know, redeeming qualities that emerge towards the end. Uh, but he's not someone I would want to be friends with. So that's, you know, and you're spending, when you're writing a novel, you're spending a lot of time with this one character, especially trying to write in the voice of someone who you yourself find unpalatable at times. Um, and then the whole passive thing, because I think there is quite, um, I don't want to call it a trend because it's been, it's not recent, but there is a um, sort of received idea in fiction that, you know, characters should have some agency, that they should have some control over their destiny, that that should emerge, you know, somewhere in the arc of the story. And I did want to write someone who is sort of stuck. 
he's detached and he's stuck in a rut and he does not know how to uh he doesn't even actually realize for much of the novel that he is passive he doesn't he's not very self-aware i guess is is part of it so yeah all of that uh you know how 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 do you write someone who's passive and not always the most aware of their own motivations and yet uh you know give the novel itself some momentum how do you make a passive person tell a story that that moves um, that was the big challenge for me. And that's probably why that's probably among the reasons it took 10 years to write, because I kept going back and thinking, no, this isn't this isn't going anywhere because the character isn't going anywhere. Um, but how do I make the story go somewhere with a c- character who in their mind and in their feelings is not going anywhere? Yeah. Now, in a larger sense, though, a lot of the characters in the book are also not what you would call likable. We get to know them very well. Um, and unlike our our central narrator, they do have their own motivations. They are very specific in what they do. And even if they choose to be um, occasionally devious or uh, if they choose to, to do things that perhaps we would not consider right, um, they do them for very specific reasons. They want to achieve something with it, but they're not necessarily likable. Uh, was this a conscious choice and why? Somewhat of a conscious choice in the sense that I thought it reflected reality. The little bit that I have, that as a child, I was exposed to, uh, you know, religious or spiritual uh, movements. Um, I even as a young child, invariably could see that, you know, personal motivations or personal interest or self-interest, uh, all all of these things were often behind, you know, people's um, searching, people's spiritual quests, whether they liked it or not. Invariably, there would be, you know, factions and infighting and people um, competing as well, not just for the most obvious, I mean, not just for, for money or, you know, basic things like that, but also uh, competing to be liked or competing for the favor of the person that they see as being the leader or the person in power, all of these things. I think, you know, ultimately um, people are very human, even when they are trying to be lofty. So yeah, in that sense, it was a conscious choice. I did know that I, I couldn't just make them all idealists. People are never, uh, you know, never able to give themselves over 100% to their ideals. So you mentioned this earlier, the fact that your protagonist, um, or rather the narrator, is, is is male. Were some of these issues only possible to fully explore with a male central character? I mean, I don't want to be too essentialist about it because I don't think, you know, I think that uh, there are always exceptions. If I say, well, usually it's men who are like this, of course, there are exceptions where there, there will be women. Um, I thought that that the the figure of the religious leader, I mean, it had to be a a man, because um, that's usually the pattern that we see. It's men generally who give themselves the permission to do something like that, something audacious, like starting this whole movement. And it's men who would get the recognition and the following, I think, you know, it's men who have an ego big enough, usually. And because of that, because that was the, because the the cent- the leader of the movement had to be a man, um, I then decided to make the child a son because, as I said earlier, I wanted particularly to explore the father-son relationship, which is different from a father-daughter relationship. And I also um, wanted in particular to explore this notion of the the good boy, which I've mentioned a few times in, you know, uh, in in passing. I think a good boy is, you know, using this with capital letters, is a different concept from a good girl. In society, they are perceived differently and they give themselves different missions slightly you know what a good girl is and what a good boy is um 
you know, if you had to write the bullet point description, I think they're quite different. So I wanted to explore this notion of the good boy and how the good boy, you know, carries the responsibility to hold uh, a community in check, but in different ways from how a girl would. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's why I think that's why some somewhere in the back of my mind, that's why I ended up with a father and a son. We're speaking with author Preeta Samarasan about her latest novel, Tale of the Dreamer's Son. Let us know, have you read it? Do you plan to? You can WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio, write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. We'll be back after this for more with Preeta, so keep it here, BFM 89.9. Be firmly motivated. BFM 89.9. Welcome back. You're listening to Buy the Book with Sharmila and Lynn. And we're speaking today to author Preeta Samarasan. Previously, um, her novel Evening is the Whole Day, you know, picked up a slew of um, accolades. Um, and now her second novel is out. It's called Tale of the Dreamer's Son. Preeta, just to pick up where we left off. Um, now, you mentioned right at the start of the interview that you were very interested in um, the perspectives of children and and how children viewed so much of the world. Um, And this also has to do with how they can sometimes perceive the world in a way that adults can't or just refuse to. And that's a big part of the book. What drew you to this approach? I think it's an approach that was there already in my first novel. I think that I I favor, even in my reading, um, I'm often drawn to child narrators and, um, you know, this particular kind of, I mean, I don't think, I think many children, many children notice things that, um, that adults don't allow themselves to notice as, as you said, and, and, uh, you know, they ask the questions that, that actually um, are a very useful tool in fiction. They move, things along by asking those questions, by forcing those questions that that adults can talk around or just bury. Um, so that's, yeah, that's what draws me um, and, and to, to, to the child narrator as a device, but I think also just as a human being and as a parent, you know, I'm, I'm drawn to the way that children see the world and I find it very useful, yeah, in, in real life and in fiction. Yeah. So how did you draw the threads between... Um child narrator and adult narrator because earlier you spoke about his passivity and his stuckness um, and it's it's interesting because he's not exactly narrating as a child he's narrating as an adult thinking back about his child self um, how did you th- draw that that through line I think you know this is basically how we all narrate the stories of our lives we don't really remember what we were thinking as a child, but we construct a story out of whatever it is that we feel we should have been thinking or what we would like to have been thinking. So he's doing exactly that, what we all do. You know, we we construct um, a character who is ourselves as a child. And uh, of course, he's also telling you a lot of things that he could not possibly have had access to. So, you know, his unreliability, if you want to call it that, or, you know, outright lying is is pretty clear, made pretty clear from the start, his fantasies, you know, um, maybe not always lying in a malicious way, but just, you know, tell, telling a story, storytelling. Um, and how how did I draw, I guess, um, you know, I, I don't know that I do draw a, a line between whom, whoever, whomever he would really have been as a child in his present self. The line really is from the character that he's constructed to the character that he is now. And uh, the the story that, I mean, he is trying to kind of uh, make some cause and effect um, argument about his childhood 
and the person that he is now, which is, I think, what we all try to do. We look at our childhoods and we look at ourselves now and we make these kinds of cause and effect um, stories, cause and effect arguments. Um, and I think, you know, some of that in his case is justified because I see him really as a victim of trauma. It, it is he has he's a traumatized child who who um, is in that state that traumatized people often find themselves in of constantly trying to understand what has happened to him. And he's not doing a very good job of it because, as I said, he's not the most self-aware person, but he is. This is why he's telling the story. He's trying to understand what happened to him. So one thing I really enjoyed about the book is um, how it depicts the way Malaysians speak. And, and the book really leans into that, not just for effect, but to also capture a very specific way of thinking, a very specific way of expressing ourselves. How did you capture this in your writing without lapsing into caricature? Oh, boy, I think voice is something that I'm really interested in. I try to really pay attention to it. Uh, in fact, it, no, it, what I just said is even a misstatement. I don't try. I don't. It's not like I'm making, a, I'm making a, a special painful effort to pay attention to it, but it's something that I'm really passionate about, really love. And it comes naturally to me to, to keep my ears open when people are talking. And, um, you know, I try to hear that voice, the voice of this particular character telling the story orally in my head as they would be you know telling it if they were in my living room um and I think yeah I, I uh what you just said about how the particular um vocal register dialect whatever you want to call it of a of a of a people of a community does express so much that <clears throat> we can't express in standard language the i think the attempt to when you when you try to sort of translate it into standard english you lose a whole lot of meaning and nuance and so um for me whenever i'm listening to malaysians talking about themselves or talking about their experiences i really try to remember it to capture it to record it in some way in in that actual language um because once it's translated into any kind of standard language i think we're not really getting to the heart of the experience um so yeah i mean you know it's it's interesting i i it's been a journey for me as a writer in the beginning when I would write Malaysian English, it used to be in dialogue only in the dialogue. Um, and eventually I wrote some short stories where the whole story was in Malaysian English. And then from there, I, I really wanted to see if I could sustain this in a novel, but I think it, writing it in a novel required a slightly different technique where I couldn't just make it uh, straight, you know, um, unfiltered dialect because at the same time there were some quite complex emotions or political things that I wanted to talk about so it had to be uh, it's kind of an invented voice in a way although I think that we do it's not something wholly unfamiliar I think we all know people who might talk like this uh, and you know there might be sort of like uh Malaysian uncles and aunties with a certain level of education and when they when they want to talk about deep things they can't talk about deep things but their deep expressions their their more intellectual conversations if you will are still inflected by the way that Malaysians think and speak so yeah it's the the whole rendition of that into a written language because I thought I can't write a 300 something page novel um in in uh, the same Malaysian English that I use for a short story so that was the whole um struggle in terms of getting the voice right. I also had to do that over and over again until I thought that it was close enough to what I wanted. 
With that, though, you have spoken up on your social media about how the uniquely Malaysian style of language made the novel quite challenging to shop around to publishers. Um, talk to us about that. Did you have to make any sort of concessions in the end, um, in the journey to getting the book published? The concessions? Uh, no, no. I mean, eventually I found a publisher who who was you know, willing, very happy to take the book uh, and uh, edit it in the way that I wanted it edited, which is to say not to make it less Malaysian in voice or in, in topic. Um, but it did take a very, very long time to sell this novel. I had many, many rejections. And among the rejections, there would be uh, concerns that it was all going to be too unfamiliar. That was a very common concern. There were also, uh, there was at least, yeah, there were one or two editors who expressed concerns about uh, my level of English, they really felt that I did not speak or write good enough English. And this, I think, was because the novel is written the way it is, you know, breaking some of the rules of of grammar and uh, syntax and punctuation, certainly. And I think they extrapolated from this because I'm not a white person that that I don't I'm not able I'm not actually able to write and speak in standard English. Um, but, you know, w w what I make of those rejections, I mean, obviously, when I get a rejection like that, I immediately know that this is not the person that I need to work with. It's not going to be good. I'm, I would not. It's good that I was rejected because the working relationship would be a disaster um, with me trying to convey in every sentence that, oh, actually, I can write this in standard English if I want to, but I'm not wanting to. Right. Um, so, yeah, there, there were those kinds of concerns and concerns as well uh, about um how much uh, is how much background knowledge is assumed in this book because that's another thing that goes hand in hand with the knowledge like i'm assuming that the reader will be able to make sense of the knowledge but um, of the of the language but also be able to make sense of certain things that are that are just spoken to uh, sp spoken about as as they're, they're just references, really. They're you know they're references, and there's not a lot of explaining done. And all I'm doing is writing about Malaysia in the way that Americans write about America, where you're expected to either know the references or educate yourself. So um, there was there was of course some some resistance to that. But I think when I eventually found the right publisher. Um, certainly there were some instances where they would ask questions. They would say, am I understanding this correctly? Or, or maybe would you need to phrase this in a way that more people will be able to understand it? But that's, you know, that's a, that's a conversation. It's a two-way conversation that can be had in each instance which, with each place where that happens. And uh, I think I was able to, I'm, I'm very, I don't feel that I made a whole lot of concessions or compromises. The only thing that in the end we agreed to do was, you know, to put in an essay about the background, a short essay about the political background and the glossary, which anyway comes at the end of the book and which I had uh, more or less um, full control over, like what, what I, what I, how I wanted to define things. Yeah. So. So for many Malaysian writers, I think there can be the sense of a dual pressure, right? To, on the one hand, include Malaysians from different races and backgrounds, but then on the mm. other hand, to not go too far or to explore too much because it may not be your place to do that. Um, how do you balance that out, especially considering that your narrator here, uh, at least in name and appearance, is a Muslim man? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I fall on the side of... Um, Fiction, the purpose of fiction being for us to at least try, try to put ourselves in the shoes of other people and to have the courage to to try, to try. Um, and of course, you know, that involves, um, again, attention and uh talking to people, getting people to read it to see if you've if you've got it right. By got it right, I don't mean I don't mean that um if 
I, I don't mean that if you've offended anyone, then you need to redo it. That's actually not what I mean. But I think I'm talking about more in the sense of like uh, accuracy, accu accurately capturing what it's like to be a person um, in that situation. So, yeah, I mean, the thing is that he is a Muslim man, but that, that as you know, um, it, from having read the book, is only one small part of his identity, right? He's a Muslim classified man. He himself is not a practicing Muslim, but he's also mixed race. He's got this weird background that is a very huge part of his identity. So all of those things, I think that also gave me um, a lot of leeway because he's different from what you know, and your average Malay Muslim man in Malaysia would be like, he's, he's really just a weirdo, an odd person. Um, but, you know, if I, if, when I'm writing someone of a different race, if I think they are in some way, what, you know, what, first of all, I have to deal with this question of what does it even mean to be representative of their race? I think maybe that's a, a trap that we tend to fall into. We are trying to write someone, okay, say I'm Indian and I'm trying to write a Chinese person. And I start thinking, well, this person isn't Chinese enough, but what does that even mean? Because am I then, uh, you know, falling back on stereotypes of what I think a Chinese person should be like and my character doesn't match those stereotypes which actually might be a good thing you know so I think I think for me I keep coming back to to um the the belief that we should write characters who are individuals and that if you in fact if they if they get if, if you are veering too close to stereotypes you know that's when you should be worried and don't worry if you're writing a if you're a Chinese person writing an Indian woman who who doesn't match the stereotype you know it's probably a good thing and um, if you are worried about accuracy or about um, unfairly unfairly representing someone from a marginalized community certainly that is a concern but you know you, that that's when I think you fall back on your readers, trusted readers, and get people to read it and, and see what they say. Uh, and, you know, the, the question of, you know, people being offended by something that you've written, I think it's not just an easy uh, on and off switch. I think at that point, if someone is offended, then you need to have that conversation about why they're offended. And if those reasons are important to you, I think that is the next step that, that we all need to cross as, as writers. Yeah. And in that same vein, I think when a novel takes on social or politically or political commentary, there is a tricky balance to strike to not let this overwhelm or supersede the actual story, right? For the story to still be be king, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, how did this play out for you? Yeah, it was. Um, it is. It is. It is always a tricky balance when writing, especially long form fiction about political events, that it can tend to swallow the the story if you're if you're not um careful or if you have this i think often as writers from uh countries that are seen as peripheral by the west meaning that the west does not have the level the body of knowledge about malaysia that it has even about india or china then i think you end up feeling like oh this is my one chance to put everything about malaysia in one book so that people you know and i think we have to really resist that and think keep going back to the question of how did these events shape these people's lives? That's what needs to be in there. How how um, these characters' lives were um, shaped and uh, restricted or or not by by these events, and and in as much as they did, then then you know you, you then you put in the 
political background uh, as they would be thinking about it in the way that they would be explaining it to themselves in the way that I think that's 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 key for me is to always keep coming back to how they would be rationalizing or justifying or or explaining these events to themselves and not just um, suddenly the authorial voice telling you about these events in uh, any way that tries to be neutral or objective because that's just I think a false it's a very it's a, it's it's a red herring in fiction we should not try to be objective or neutral um you know if anything then you know point your readers to other other sources where they can go and get that background after 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 or before the book if they're interested but that's not what fiction is for just to close off the question that is probably many writers banes um what's next for you um i'm working on a third novel um which is also set in malaysia and which is about two sisters uh, reaching the end of their lives and it's about it's about a sibling relationship but of course it, it will also be uh, against a background of political events in in Malaysia uh, and then you know I have other short always smaller projects on the on the front burners as well like short stories and essays and various little projects yeah Preeta thank you so much for speaking to us about the book and thank you for writing the book yeah, thanks so much, Shamila and Lynn, for making time for me today. And I'm thrilled to be included. Thanks. We've been speaking with Preeta Samarasan. Her second novel, Tale of the Dreamer's Son, has just come out. Let us know. Have you read it? Are you planning to? You can WhatsApp us, 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. That brings us to footnotes. To close off, we are going to be sharing our thoughts on Tale of the Dreamer's Son by Preetha Samarasan. We just heard from the author herself there. Um, I have so many thoughts, Lynn, so I'm going to cheat and just throw this to you first. Okay, uh, I'm just going to be deeply unprofessional and say <laughs> that I really love the book. I mean, I, I've been dying to say it for, for the it's entirety. It's not professional. A review should be honest. Okay, fair enough. Um, because I, I really enjoyed the book. I think it's one of the my favourite things that I've read this year. Um, I found it thought-provoking. I found it a, a good story, well told. And I enjoyed the read. I, I think that that's an important one to say. And it's why early on in our interview with Preeta, I was very quick to ask about the the humour because I, I worry that by saying May 13th and late 1980s Malaysian political turmoil, we might be leading people to believe that the to- the book has a certain tone. Um, it has a heaviness to it, but I think it is a satisfying emotional weight. It doesn't feel instead like uh, you're in you're in a book that's being difficult with you for difficulty's sake. It really feels like an old-fashioned big novel, and, and I enjoyed the experience of being immersed in it. A big novel that actually isn't a very big novel in reality. It's it's quite a readable and small book. And I think that's also important to say because maybe if you're thinking May 13, then race relations, do I want to be reading a doorstopper? It's actually extremely easy to get through. Um, two things, you called it an enjoyable read. Um, for me, it was enjoyable for multiple reasons. The plot, of course, is is great. I love the the way in which the narrator takes us through back and forth time. But I think 
the thing that was the most enjoyable for me about the book is actually Preeta's writing. Um, mm. She is such a fine, evocative writer um, that when she describes something, the way someone might feel or the way disgust might manifest in the body or um, the way someone responds to being told something by someone else, um, the metaphors she uses, the 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 analogies, they're so surprising and refreshing that they make me want to almost take a pause and imagine what those words could feel like, you know? Um, and there's something really pleasurable about, pleasurable about reading really well-written words and really well-constructed sentences. And that's the sense I got from this book. Everything is so well-crafted, um, which leads me to the second thing about the novel that I really, really enjoyed, which is the use of um, Malaysian English. Um, we talked about we talked about um, how difficult that might be for people outside of Malaysia, particularly when it comes to being published and so on. But honestly, as a Malaysian, reading a book um, and and sort of going through extensive descriptions that sound like how the people you know speak and think, there's a great joy in that. Um, there's something very personal and intimate about reading the book in the way it's, it was written that did a lot for me. So that intimacy is the thing I wanted to pick up on because you mentioned uh, that it's well-written, which I wholeheartedly agree with, but that well-writtenness is about giving you insight into characters and motivations, even in the small things, even in why it is that somebody chose to wear something specific, even if it's in uh, about why somebody chose to exit their room at that particular moment, as opposed to five minutes later or five minutes before. And it's a very finely observed character drama, I think, and not just in the central um, narrator who we've established in the interview. It's a difficult one to contend with. He's slippery, but he doesn't seem to know he's slippery. Um, you know, he, he lies and he tells you he lies, but he can't seem to stop. So the central character is one thing, but even in the, even in the people that you meet only for a few pages or people who are in the periphery of the story, you get that sense of, I don't know, you get that sense of empathy, I think, and that feeling of, of knowing people or being able to see a real slice of life. I was thinking a lot about this um, and how, I, I'm not sure this is true for everybody, but I think sometimes the pleasure of fiction is when you're in the thick of things, uh, when you are in the middle of your own messy and confusing life, the pleasure of fiction is being able to read something that doesn't all tie it up with a bow, but that helps to give you the clarity that can come from hindsight that you simply can't get in your own life because it's something you get from a character who's looking back. And I got that from Tale of the Dreamer's Son. It was that exact feeling of, of being able to to be with somebody looking back on their life and having the hindsight of being able to make sense of the things that had happened to them. Um, I have to say that the characters for me were such standouts. You know, every character, even the smaller ones, the minor ones, they are so sharply drawn. I could imagine who they were in real life. I could imagine larger lives for them outside of the bit that we read in the book. You dislike them for very specific reasons. Yes, yes, yeah. because you can imagine them as real people that mm. you would encounter. Um, I just wanted to close off by 
just touching on the social political stuff because I think that's a very big part of the book. Um, and and to me, I think also one of the parts that I won't say I struggled with, but I think left me feeling perhaps the 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 negative emotions. And that's not because the book itself is not well done, but I think it's because the the topic is so fraught, right? The issue of religious freedom, the issue of um, racial discrimination. And because it's so personal, having grown up and, and lived in Malaysia, um, I found those parts incredibly important to read about, but something that I'm still unpacking for myself. And, and that's not a bad thing. I just wanted to say that it's not the easiest of things to read about. Yeah, I... I... I get where you're coming from. We've had conversations about this yeah. off air and I think that you felt about it more. Uh, you felt you felt a heaviness with it that I mm, didn't necessarily... Like at the pit of my stomach kind of feeling. Yes, know? yes. Yeah. I, I'm not exactly sure why, but I, I'm glad you brought it up mostly because people should know what they're getting into. I didn't necessarily feel that way. Like I said, it was for me a satisfying emotional weightiness, not a heaviness. Uh, but for you, it manifested differently. We've been talking about Tale of the Dreamer's Son by Preeta Samarasan. We did speak with the author herself earlier on in the show. Let us know, have you read the book? Are you planning to? Um, and, and if you have, did you like it? You can WhatsApp us, 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Write to us at buythebook at bfm.mine. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.